Hey, everybody, it's 5 p.m. on Thursday, December 2nd, and that means that you are at the bar once again. Uh, I'm Inez Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. Jennifer Braceris, unfortunately, is unable to join us today. Uh, but thank you so much for tuning in and joining me for our virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Um, today, we are talking about efforts to house male prison inmates with women um, on the basis of self-identification. Mm -hmm. So currently, California law requires prisons to place transgender and non-binary inmates in facilities that correspond to their gender identity. Um, but the Women's Liberation Front, which is a radical feminist group, um, our guest is joining us today from there. Um, she So they have filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California on behalf of some of these incarcerated women, um, claiming that the, the law puts female inmates at, in, in danger by housing them um, with biologically male inmates. So uh, one of the incarcerated pl uh, plaintiffs alleges that she was unfortunately sexually assaulted by one of these biological males in prison. Um, so we're going to be talking about this, this case uh, with Lauren Adams, who's the legal director for WOLF, the Women's Liberation Front. So uh, she's been a guest on with us before, but we're happy to uh, welcome her back to talk about these groundbreaking lawsuits um, and, and the important work that WOLF is doing in terms of both advocating for these women in court and their rights, um, as well as overall pointing out the problem uh, when the law doesn't recognize biological sex. So uh, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us once again at, at the bar. Thank you for having me. So, so lay out the basics of um, of your lawsuit. You know, who are your plaintiffs, and um, you know what what are they alleging, and and what are are you arguing as their lawyer? Yeah. So our our claims are constitutional in nature, both under the federal constitution and the state constitution of California. Um, and so the first one is really the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, background dealing with uh, putting inmates at risk, at known risk of disproportionate um, disproportionate risk of sexual assault. Um, and that is the definition of what's happening when you're placing male inmates in with women, um, because overwhelmingly men commit sex crimes and women tend to be the victims of them. And we've seen that bear out. Um, and then in addition, we have the 14th Amendment claim uh, based on equal protection of the law, both based on sex, because this law disproportionately harms women versus men. Men continue to get, you know, single sex prisons. And now there's mixed sex prisons and men's prisons. Um, and then based on identity, because this law allows special privileges and rights to inmates who identify as transgender that are not available to other inmates. Uh, such as choosing your own roommate, choosing your housing, uh, things like that. But then the big one is the First Amendment as well. So that's a big a big piece of it as well. And we've got both uh, free exercise of religion because we have a plaintiff um, as well as many other um, women who are incarcerated who depend upon sex separation and part of the practice of their faith. And so this interferes with that as well. And then there's free speech and the right to petition the government and actually the establishment clause as well, because this law and its implementation really is imposing a faith-based belief system about sex. So it says that and asks people to act as if and say that there is no objective immutable sex. That's not a thing. And asks them to say, you know, sex can be changed or a person can be born a man and become a woman, or it's not based on biology. 
And the way we're seeing that play out is very harsh. Um, so our one of our plaintiffs, Crystal, who's the sexual assault victim, when she was writing her complaint about it to them, and uh, when they responded to her complaint, they uh, in places where she had referred to him as a man, um, they referred to him as a transgender woman with a penis. Um, because he used his penis in committing this act against her. And that has been really, really hard for her to deal with. We say in the complaint that their refusal to acknowledge the sex of her perpetrator has caused additional harm, um, pretending that this is a woman that did this to her. And we're seeing this more and more. There's the policing of language and um, other plaintiffs have had their grievances uh, you know, responded to in a way that changed the language. And it's really not good. So you are telling me that a sexual assault victim who is alleging, right, that she was assaulted is having her description of that assault edited uh, to falsely describe the individual as, you know, with, with essentially PC terms, right? Like that mm -hmm. she can't describe the man who assaulted her as a man in her own complaint. Yeah, so it's not that they went into her complaint and edited it. In their response to her, when they quoted her complaint, they changed the the language. So they did that. And one of our other plaintiffs, Nadia, they they did that where she had written in her complaint that male offenders, um, one of one of the things she talked about with them was male offenders who are scared of being assaulted get to leave men's prisons, but that they have nowhere to go. And they did the same thing where they quoted herself back to her and put male in scare quotes and then put transgender female next to it. And so this is something where they feel like it's already hard enough for them to be heard and to really feel like they're getting this brick wall of they really don't care because the point they're trying to make is that these are, these harms are happening because these are men. And so if they're just, it's like gaslighting basically. And I know it's an overused word, but it's definitely what's happening. Um, well, we actually have a video here about one mm -hmm. of your plaintiffs that I'm, I'm going to roll with, with her story. And, um, I mean, her background that going into this made it even, even more difficult or must make it even more difficult for her, uh, to deal with this kind of situation, but I'm, I'm going to roll that and then I'm going to get your, your comment. Cool. Hi, my name is Teresa Johnson. My sister is Tamikia Johnson. She's currently incarcerated at Central California Women facility and she currently has been there for 10 years she's younger than i am by five years she's the my baby sister we grew up with our parents in home we had a great childhood she played basketball she was very smart she still is smart she's very, very smart she was a 911 operator for a few years she worked for the housing authority for a few years she went to Dominguez on a scholarship for basketball. She played basketball there, and that's when she finished her career, and then she went on to be a CHP officer. She was a model extraordinary CHP officer. She started off programs there. She taught there. She did everything that they expected of her. Well, from day one, I felt betrayed by California. 
I felt like they knew I was a survivor of domestic violence. There's plenty of evidence to, to suggest that. And instead of treating me like a victim of domestic violence, I got treated like a criminal. And I was harshly charged. I was harshly sentenced. She um, was housed with a male inmate, which was abusing women while he was on the outside. And he was biological a male, and he had some violent and abusive towards females. She was housed there with him by WF sergeants for um, knowing that he was a violent man. It was a joke that they put my sister in there with him to see how long she would last, even though they all knew she was a CHP officer and that she was a survivor of domestic violence. They say that I'll be able to live a normal, healthy lifestyle. And my first regular general population cell is to be housed with a vicious and dangerous biological male inmate. And for me to find out from one of the sergeants later that that was done on purpose as a bet, as a joke, to see how long a former police officer could last in that type of environment was like devastating to me. So this really, you know, the first few years of her being there and hearing these stories and her anxiety and panic attacks and things that she went through, being scared for her life. And she felt that the guards, you know, didn't have her best um, safety at interest. It really tore our family apart, you know, to hear these stories, knowing that when she went in there, she was a victim of domestic violence. I feel like I can't trust anybody. No one cares about my interests. No one cares about my mental health. No one cares about my safety. So my whole quality of life is, is damaged. You know, I have physical symptoms, I have emotional distress, panic, anxiety attacks. And I'm triggered by different things. And I have nightmares and insomnia. And like, I'm totally affected. I've never felt like this before. Even when I was living with my abusive husband, I've never felt like I feel today. She's still up, is up against the wall and still fighting for her safety as currently they have nearly 10 to 15 more to 30 more men housed there. She's fighting against that, you know, so she can have her, continue to have her life, her safety, her health and her mental well-being. She has a 14 year old daughter that follows in her footsteps as far as education. She's a straight A student. She is currently playing basketball. She's in high school her first year. It's kind of hard to raise a teenager, not alone, my niece was four years old when she went inside, to raise a teenager by visitation, by phone calls and letters. And to, for them to still have that bomb, that is extraordinary to show that the love is unconditionally between my sister and her daughter and our family. So when I found that Wolf was um, creating this space for us to talk and air our grievances and be vulnerable 
and join the part of a lawsuit that will help protect me and other women, this is the only group it was like Kevin said. It's the only group of people who care, who listen, who work diligently to to hear me out and carry out something tangible that can help me. I want to thank everyone without me getting too emotional for taking your time and everything out of your life to listen to my story and my sister's story and anyone that's speaking on her behalf. So I don't even know what to say um, right away coming off that video, but um, that last part really struck me, right? The fact that nobody is interested at all. And we live in a country where minor grievances, right, are are, are uh, turned into like emotional traumas and you know, talking, making a joke. I'm thinking here about like, for example, the social uh, sciences conference where one professor made a joke about ladies lingerie on the eighth floor or whatever, uh, made a joke in an elevator, a very mild joke. Um, and that generated, you know, claims of trauma and sexual harassment. Here we have, you know, genuine trauma, sexual harassment and assault. And they're saying that nobody but Wolf and, and nobody but, you know, a few folks generally, and this is of course to Wolf's credit, but it's also a condemnation of an environment in which apparently this this story um, is is just not convenient. Yes, <laughs> it, it's been very um, eye-opening. There's so many groups that are dedicated to fighting for the rights of prisoners who do really good work um, and are on the wrong side of this or just don't want to touch it because they know how polarizing it is and they're trying to do the other work that they're doing and don't want to get caught up in something and these women can't just do a viral media, social media campaign, or even call reporters or anything. So they're completely reliant on other people to carry their message. And it's easy to squash. We had um, LGBTQ Nation tweeted a story. Their headline was turf inmates sue over transgender policy or something like that calling them turfs and they were rightfully ratioed for it and rightfully made fun of for it because our inmates are not these are like our plaintiffs. They're not radical feminists as far as I know. I mean, they're just women who are in there and are, are, <laughs> are experiencing these things and are, are trying to get things righted that are wrong right now. And so it, you know, it really shows a lot of the misogyny of, Women aren't supposed to complain about these things. They're supposed to be nice and supposed to make space. And, you know, there's these problems in the men's prison. And so we're going to solve it by putting this certain population in here without any safeguarding as if there could be any real safeguarding, you know, when you're talking about violent offenders, essentially. Um <laughs> Um, so how do we get, how do we get here? How do we get to a, a place legally, um, where something that is so contrary to common sense, right. Um, that is so obvious that is going to produce exactly these results, right. If you put biological violent men who are and oftentimes, as you point out, convicted sex offenders, um, mm -hmm. in 
close quarters um, in a prison environment with biological women, these are entirely predictable results. How do we get to a place legally where that becomes not just possible, but required by the law? That's a great question. And and uh, yeah, 20, 20% are sex offenders, um, which is higher than the general male population in prison as well. Um, that was done, a study UC Irvine found that 20% of trans identified it. This isn't general population. This is just California prisons. 20% are sex offenders compared to 15% of the general male population, less than 5% of the female population. And that is also borne out in the data that we have about the actual male inmates who are housed in the women's prisons currently, 20% of them are sex offenders, including those in there for convictions for forcible rape or, you know, and, and all kinds of just terrible crimes uh, against women and children. And how did we get there? Um, legally, I think some of it starts with the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which passed unanimously and nothing in the bill says anything about mixed sex prisons or cross sex prison housing, but they did send it over to um, the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prison to make regulations. And those regulations came back with some comments, I guess, um, on deciding where to put transgender inmates basically was kind of how it put. So that wasn't something that was anticipated with the bill itself, or I'm sure it wouldn't have gotten unanimously passed. But that kind of set the, the pace there for saying sometimes we're going to treat it. And then you have things like in California that are totally ideologically motivated because Prison Rape Elimination Act is talking about rape. So it's very safety oriented. And the bill in California, the one we're dealing with, it's, you know, pronouns and we got to respect people. You don't even have to identify as a woman to go in, like to be transferred. You can identify as you know, genderqueer or non-binary or whatever. You don't have to have surgery. You don't have to have hormones. A lot of these guys don't have, take hormones. Most of them don't have surgery. These are just, these are just guys. It's almost like this emperor's new clothes thing where, and that's where we get into the establishment clause too, is like, it, no one's been saying no to, to these people when they're making these policies and no one knows what's going on. So it just really, that's, I think, how we got there is it starts there. And I think that's where we fix some of it, too, outside of fighting in the courts, is that there's a lot that Congress can do to fix this because they already have their hands in, you know, correctional regulations already. So that's how I think legally we got there. There's a lot culturally that happened, right, that brought us here, too. But I don't know what just happened there. Oh, we lost in this. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they cut out. It booted me from the system. Um, I'll leave the I'm show now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry about that. But um, okay. so this legislation, um, was it AB 132? SB 132, um, yeah. SB 132. Um, the, is, it, is it like SOGI legislation? Is it a general piece of legislation or is it specifically aimed um, specifically. At, specifically at prisons, um, and and you say that you don't even have to do anything, right? To is is it purely on the basis of self identification? Purely, it's it's pure self ID. They are explicit in the text of the law 
that they cannot make, they can't take anatomy into consideration in their housing decisions. They can't, they're very specific. They have a whole FAQ on their website. This is, this is not something they're trying to hide. This is something they're celebrating. Yeah, we don't make them take hormones. We don't do, not that it would matter because you can take hormones and still it doesn't make you a woman, but it's, it, they very are specific. You don't have to identify as a woman because it's the Transgender Non-Binary and Intersex Dignity Act. Um, and they, they define non-binary as including people without a gender identity. So like, you don't have to say any, you just have to literally check a box and they send you to this committee. I think they finally came back and said they've denied a couple of them, but they've got like 300 plus applications to go to the women's prison outstanding. Now, why we couldn't put those 300 all in a unit to themselves is a great question I would ask, but the Prison Rape Elimination Act does not allow it, and neither does SB 132. So so you bring up a good point, right? There, there are, so there is somewhat of another side to this um, that's not purely like sort of gender ideology, right? And that is that um, some of these transgender inmates are at risk themselves um, in a male prison, um, what flexibility, I mean, how did they deal with it before this act, right? Um, was there flexibility on the sheriff's part or on, on sort of the, the prison warden's part to, cause you just suggested, right? Okay. You have 300 of these folks. Um, why not house them in a separate block where they're separate from the, the mainstream male prison, but they're also not housed with biological women. I mean, it seems like some solutions to this could be found that didn't um, involve violating the rights of female inmates. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's worth noting, too, that there are trans identified inmates in these women's facilities who also object to this bill and are even there because of it, but also think that it's has crazy. I've spoken with one who reached out and who was like, this is crazy. They're letting anybody in here. Um, he wrote to me and said, like, this is just absolutely nuts. Um, when, you know, because when people knew we were doing this case. So I think they, yeah, there, there previously has been a lot of flexibility. The rule that actually says that you can't have them in a dedicated facility is really meant to, what you don't want to do is identify a vulnerable inmate and then have them in solitary for 23 hours a day for their own safety. So that they were trying to kind of get in front of that with that regulation federally. Um, but it, yeah, I think that's what they did. But this this has all kinds of people. And we know that there's, there's no reason to have all of anyone come on the basis of self-ID. It's just truly absurd. Um, but flexibility would be good. It, I think it's very, very rare. But there's still no reason to necessarily do it. There are a lot of vulnerable populations. Prison rape in men's prisons is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And we know from other studies that gay and bisexual men are at least as much at risk as trans identified men. They the the stats are very clear from the Bureau of Prison and from you know NGOs that do work on it as well. They get like five, six times um, the victimization as uh, straight male inmates. And there's also sex offenders. 50% of victims of rape in men's prison are registered sex offenders. That is a population that does not do well in men's prison. 
And I already mentioned that 20% of trans identified inmates are sex offenders. There's overlap there. Not all of these guys who are being harmed in the men's prisons are being harmed because they identify as transgender. At least that's not what the stats show, but that's, you can't really say that, but we say it. Yeah, actually, uh, Sora Bakhmari had a um, article in the American Conservative recently where he followed up on um, the, I, th- I believe there were 56 murders of transgender individuals um, in the United States and, and found that the overwhelming majority of those murders were not at all connected to um, the the status, um, transgender status of the, of the people who who were murdered. And of course, they're, they're used as that kind of talisman, right? Um, in terms of, of politics, it's always the implication is that uh, trans people are more at risk of, of uh, violent crime generally. So I can see where you're, what you're saying um, it jibes in a larger context. But let's broaden it out just a bit. Um, is California the only place that this is this is happening? Uh, or, or other states, do they have some similar regulations that allow biological males to transfer into the female prison? It's really patchwork. So Maine just passed a law that does the same thing as California. Um, and there's other states like Washington that are doing it without any law. They just are doing it as unofficial policy. You have New Jersey, where they are now doing it based on a court settlement. Um, from a trans-identified inmate who had sued over the conditions in the men's prison. You have states like South Dakota who have it in their administrative rulemaking, and it's happening in Texas, Florida, and a lot of other states. And so it's really a patchwork of very few have actually passed like legislation that makes it happen. It's usually something that's happening unofficially or is happening as part of rulemaking. Um, Although if the Equality Act passes, we'll see it everywhere. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because th- this is one piece of a broad agenda to make it impossible to identify biological sex under the law, right? Um, to make it po- impossible to distinguish between men and women, uh, and and there's all kinds of consequences to that that are. I would have to say comparatively to this or lesser, right? We, we've all t- uh, seen and talked about the, the issue um, of having men or boys running, uh, for example, on the women's track team or competing. I saw one today um, competing in swim meets uh, and, and racking up medals in, in female competition when they're biologically male. Um, th- there's all kinds of, of consequences. I don't think people think like, I don't know, a common experience might be that you and I, you know, fly, right? If we, if we get, um, we go to, go to the airport to, to get on a plane um, and we, we set off the TSA scanner, uh, we assume that we can have a same sex pat down, right? If they have to administer a pat down, that it's going to be a woman that pats us down. But that in itself relies on the law being able to, to distinguish between men and women and have it be a legitimate request from somebody to say, no, I don't want to be patted down by a member of the opposite sex. Um, so there's all these kind of uh, implications of this. And you, you say that the Equality Act, and then I would add the, the Equal Rights Amendment, also, I think these days would functionally mm-hmm. um, eliminate that distinction. I mean, what is Wolf doing um, in terms of these cases, bringing these cases? I, I just, I think you're, what you're doing is such a clear and obvious example of why this does harm women and why it is dangerous for the law not to be able um, to to distinguish in this way. I mean, what are you doing to get the word out about your case, um, about your, your plaintiffs 
um, the experiences that they've had, and then how are you connecting it to to the larger debate over essentially our, our right to, to notice the fact that men and women are biologically different? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things we did too is we, you know, have networked with a lot of our partners. Um, you guys are one of them who signed on as a supporting organization. And we have a really wide variety, cross-partisan group, left, right, you know, um, just people who, with their various missions, different groups who are also, you know, believe in single-sex prisons and believe in having safe conditions for women in prisons. And so that's been really helpful because people have been really, really, it's been very helpful to have people share their platforms. We've uh, reached out as well, uh, you know, just really trying to make those connections to the Equality Act and everything, because that, you know, once that happens, it's going to be, it would be really hard to get that horse back in the barn or however you say it, because once you've passed a law on it and it's nationwide, it it's, it's presumed constitutional, right? Unless, unless otherwise found by a court. And so there's just not a good track record right now of courts finding, you know, in favor of single sex spaces. And yeah, the ERA too, um, you know, the Equality Act in some, I think the Equality Act personally is more harmful because it's very explicitly spe spells out that, you know, that there's not supposed to be single sex spaces. It actually just says it. Whereas we just, we have to, we know that the equal, the equal rights amendment is dangerous in that regard more by inference between what we know and what we're seeing in the courts and what we, um, you know, the interaction with the law, because Wolf does have a, you know, we don't support the equal rights amendment, but that's not necessarily would have been a given, right? Like if we didn't feel that it was so dangerous and harmful to single sex spaces and similar things, then it wouldn't necessarily be something we wouldn't support. We find ourselves what we feel in the unfortunate position of feeling that way, but, um, you know, we can't, uh, Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but I was going to say that, you know, the Equality Act, it really can't be rehabilitated. I know a lot of people talk about amending it to give exemptions and things like that. But some of the really just baseline things in the act, like adding sex as a protected characteristic to public accommodations or federal funding, that in itself, even without the words gender identity, does a lot of harm because it says you can't, it says women can't discriminate against men and we need to discriminate against men to say to stay safe and to be able to fully participate in public life. Um, yeah, so. it's um, it's funny. It's one of those things that it's a perfect at the bar subject because the use of the word discriminate, right? In in terms of the way that we talk in um, outside of the law, right? Where we think discrimination is a really bad thing, right? But mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you discriminate every time you choose to go to Pete's rather than Starbucks. That's a discrimination. You're making a distinction there. Um, and, and in the law, there's this category, right, of invidious discrimination or bad discrimination. The law recognizes that those things that we don't generally call discrimination, those decisions and distinctions between people that we make all the time, the law says all of those are fine, except for this narrow category of, of types of discriminations that we've decided are, are really bad. Um, so, so for an illegal, so for example, discrimination on the basis of race, right? Um, but the, 
the, the problem is that, yes, as you say, we do discriminate against men and, and, and men discriminate against women um, when we're talking about any kind of distinction or single sex space, right? You are discriminating against the boy who's track time at the, on, uh, for the 400 meter. Um, it, it puts him out of the, the running for the boys team, but puts him in number one for the girls team. He's kept off that team only by discrimination on the basis of his sex, right? That is the legal operative um, that keeps him off that team. And likewise, in the, the um, consideration that we're talking about now within prisons, it's a discrimination against men to bar them from women's prisons. But this is a discrimination that we do, we make all the time that's really necessary to keep women safe. Just because the word discrimination is used. And I think if people just have this gut instinct, um, you know, to to say, oh, that's bad. And that's certainly how the Equality Act is sold, right? It's just that we don't want to discriminate. And the same with the word inclusion, right? Like they do that, like, oh, it needs to be inclusive. Actually, a lot of things need to be exclusive to function as intended. Um, you can't have an inclusive women's bathroom unless you're talking about excluding types of women, but we don't get to just invent new types of women. Um, it, it, Yeah, it's really sort of using the language of, and that goes back to what I said too, about women being expected to sort of be kind and make space. It's, oh, you can't discriminate like this these people who need you, they, you know, need, need us to include them in order to, you know, make them feel good and make them safe. But it's not, it, it's at the expense of making us less safe and taking things away from us. And so it, yeah, uh, I think that we're so used to seeing discrimination, sex discrimination specifically as a thing that harms women that we don't recognize that, not every form. I mean, really treating pregnancy discrimination or things like that as a form of sex discrimination is also, I mean, providing those kind of services or, or allowances under the law for women that are needed based on our ability to reproduce is kind of, it's discrimination against men to make those allowances for women. But in order to discriminate, that's what evens the playing field, right? Like for certain biological differences there. And then people try and make comparisons to that with like race and things like that in a way that just, you know, doesn't work. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess we'll, we'll close out on this. It's it, There's been an interesting um, alliance formed, right, uh, politically over not just this particular issue, but this whole series of issues, right, that res result from the law not being able to recognize sex. So here I am, a, a, a proud anti-feminist, and here you are, a proud radical feminist. Um, I suspect we have very different views about a sort of um, male-female relations and, and um, all kinds of political topics, but here we are both are acknowledging that there are biological differences between men and women and that those are important in some some limited circumstances, right? Not in all circumstances, not, you know, I think we can we can both agree and probably a large part of the American political spectrum can agree with both of us, you know, that that women can be, you know, chemists and that that sex is not a, a relevant, uh, you know, sort of consideration when we're talking about who can be a, a, a pharmacist or who can be a chemist or who can be, you know, uh, even an astronaut, although, of course, Biological differences do matter in in space, and women's suits are different than men's, and they have different biological requirements, right? Um, but here we both are acknowledging that actually, you know, 
we need the law to recognize um, some of these distinctions because when the law doesn't recognize them, you know, people, real people get hurt and most of them are women. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for, for coming on um, and sharing your plaintiff's cases and stories. Um, we'll continue to, to get, do updates on, on the case as that progresses. Um, really interested in some of these claims that you're bringing. Um, we'll see how, how a court treats them because this is really the first kind of case of this kind, is it not? Mm-hmm. As far as, yeah, as far as we know, I don't think, cause we, we looked for, <laughs> we looked and we can't find anything, but I think it makes intuitive sense. So we hope well, the court sees it that way. Well, we will we will update uh, all the at the bar viewers um, when there is any any uh, answer from the court on some of these claims, and we'll, we'll keep tracking those claims. Thank you so much, Lauren from Wolf, from for coming on and and uh, explaining this case to us. Um, and then thank you to our listeners. At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. It's also available for download at all your favorite podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and others. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks for a year in review episode um, of At the Bar. So thanks for for coming out, and uh, thanks, Lauren, for coming on. Thank you.